Welcome to another episode of Differences Not Deficits, where we discuss what we are learning and changing in our therapy so we can support and empower neurodivergent individuals with compassion and respect. Thank you for listening so we can all learn together. The primary purpose of Differences Not Deficits is to educate and inform. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not constitute educational or medical advice. Listeners should consult with their professionals familiar with each individual or family for specific guidance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Differences Not Deficits podcast. So today we're going to start with a quote by Dr. Valerie Rain, who is an amazing psychologist who wrote the book, The Patriarchy Stress Disorder. Trauma is any event or circumstance that made you feel unsafe in your fullest authentic expression and resulted in creating trauma adaptations. So this quote was chosen today because Dr. Valerie has been an absolute incredible inspiration to my life over the last few years. And what she talks about is that trauma isn't just the big traumas that many people think of, such as rape or a natural disaster or big childhood traumas like physical abuse, parental divorce, molestation. We truly all experience trauma in one way or another just by being yelled at, criticized, or ignored. And often this trauma is unintentional. So this is not about what, you know, like blaming people. This is just about knowing that we all experience trauma just by being human because it happens. So this quote is particularly important today because the topic we'll be discussing is one of Yolandi and my favorite topics, which is interoception. And interoception has a lot to do with healing trauma. So before we kind of talk about that, we wanted to quickly talk about our first episode and just this whole podcast experience. We decided to just put ourselves out there. This is definitely not perfect. We are going to be learning along the way, but we would never do this if we waited for the perfect thoughts or the perfect way to deliver it. And so after all, this podcast is about being human and being your authentic self. So we just wanted to make clear that we are not bashing any professionals, whether it's SLPs, behaviorists, mental health professionals, OTs, etc. Every profession has its own unique perspective and own unique practices, but there was something missing in Debbie and I's therapy and in our journey. And the one thing that we realized we're missing was that authentic connection to our clients, seeing, hearing, and validating the unique individual that is inside rather than, you know, as a behaviorist, treat the outside behavior, looking at that person within. So this podcast is just leaning towards the importance of working as a team, working as a multidisciplinary team where we have the conversations where we blend our therapies together. And I think that's an important conversation that has to happen because we feel like that's that missing component. It's that authentic connection that we're missing. Yeah. And just to second that, I want to just on my own talking about SLPs, because I am an SLP. When I listened to our first episode, I was like, oh gosh, I hope I didn't offend anyone. It's now, yeah. Like, or make <laughs> it like I was like not okay with what speech and language pathologists do because that is not that's not at all what I meant I was just kind of saying that's me so I kind of got tired of doing the articulation doing the language when it when it wasn't really resonating with me so and the emotional part of communication was what really uh, struck me as an area that I wanted to pursue and learn more about. So that's just my own journey. Uh, there's some, you know, amazing SLPs who are so good at language and 
and helping kids with that. But for me, that wasn't my specialty. So this is something that truly resonates with me. And I can see that that's, that's where I'm going to be most effective with the individuals that I work with. So uh, that that's just my journey. So uh, we are going no, to totally. talk about yeah. interception. So, um, so yeah, for those of you who are not familiar with interception, just wanted to give a brief uh, definition. Interception enables a person to perceive the physiological state of their body, such as recognizing signals of fatigue, muscle aches or muscle weakness, signs of respiratory effort, changes in temperature, heart rate, etc. And many, many more. There's many more signals our body sends us. And when these body signals are noticed, our brain uses them as clues to our emotions. So why is interception one of our favorite discussions? Debbie and I started talking about this last year, and it resonated with both of us. Debbie has a deep understanding of interception through her own journey. And on this podcast today, we really just wanted to share that journey. So Debbie is going to talk more about her journey through her discovery of now interception. All right. So I discovered the term interception last year at Meg Proctor's Neurodiversity Summit, which was a great uh, webinar. And in that, what really stood out to me was interception. Kelly Mahler, she's an OT and Kim Clary, who's an autistic OT presented. Um, It was an amazing presentation. And I'm so incredibly grateful that it was presented to SLPs as this is not just for OTs. It's truly necessary for all disciplines working with neurodivergent individuals. And I would say, and what some would call neurotypical people as well. I don't think this interception just applies to neurodivergent individuals. But the reason it resonated with me so deeply immediately was because I kind of been on my own journey in Dr. Valerie's program. Dr. Valerie is the quote that I read initially when we started the podcast. That is where I discovered this mind-body connection with trauma that uh, lived inside my body and affected me in my everyday life. Although I didn't know my experience what I was going through, what I was doing with Dr. Valerie was this thing called the thriving experience. And it it's just a group of women and Dr. Valerie's program. And through that, we really delved into the body and how trauma lives in our body. Mm-hmm. It does. I mean, I, I agree with you. It's for our listeners listening, I mean, talking about this is is hard and talking about, you know, your own personal journey, especially when it comes down to, you know, the trauma that gets stuck. I appreciate, you know, Debbie talking about her journey and from how you grew up. That has a lot to do with the trauma that gets stuck. Yeah. And on that note, just as we're talking about this, I can I can feel my uh, my throat getting tighter and my face kind of getting hot. So there's my interoception experience as I'm talking about this because this subject is hard and putting my voice out there is also hard. It have a lot to do with where I came from, my background. I grew up in a, in kind of the seen but not heard generation or upbringing where you follow the rules and you sit quietly and you are a good little girl. And this is definitely, I just want to make it clear that this is definitely not about blaming anyone, like blaming my parents or whatever way I was raised in any way whatsoever. This is just about how we are all affected throughout just growing up. Nobody escapes it really. I don't think, I mean, you could feel like you have a perfect childhood or whatever that may be, but there's always something that hits you hard and knocks you down and it 
lives in your body. Mm-hmm. So somewhere along the way, somewhere along when I was very young, I lost my voice. I learned to be extremely quiet. I was incredibly quiet, incredibly shy. I think I learned that being shy was my way of keeping myself safe. Maybe if I could just hide in the background and no one would notice me and I wouldn't get in trouble or I wouldn't, whatever, I wouldn't get attention because I didn't want the attention. Um, Growing up, I always felt very different from the other kids. I was definitely not a cute kid. I looked like a boy, but I was so super girly, girly. I was the most girly, girly little girl in the world. But I look like a boy. I had big afro, big glasses, and I was not good at sports. I also had bad knees, so I would just fall down randomly out of the blue because we would dislocate. I was not quick on my feet when it came to conversations, so I often didn't know what to say, and I felt left out a lot. And I, it's just funny that I say that because <laughs> now I'm an SLP. Yeah, yeah I really didn't know how to have a conversation. <laughs> so there's something there's something to be said with that. I mean, I'm I'm a behaviorist that teaches how to be social and I am not very social myself. I'm kind of an introvert. <laughs> so Yeah. So I think it's I, I feel now I, I see it's more the population that I was attracted to in this in my field, maybe not so much the um <laughs> Yeah, you know it's communication it's part. <laughs> So just to give you an idea a little bit how I was as a girl, I when my my mom at one point was in a treatment uh, center and the family part of it where the family goes and um, gets counseling, I had met an older man and he gave me this poem. It's called I'd Pick More Daisies. And, and I think I was I think I was around 10. I'm not sure of my age, 10, 11, could be even 12. I'm not sure. But he wrote, Debbie, thank you for being you and sharing with me. I want to share my favorite picker upper with you. Love, Jean. And the poem is called I'd Pick More Daisies. The author was unknown on this. We did look it up online and we found that it's possibly someone named Nadine Stare who wrote it at like 85 years of age. But we're not sure if that's the author because it's still up for debate, I guess. But anyway, so here's the poem. If I had my life to live over, I'd try to make more mistakes next time. I would relax. I would limber up. I would be sillier than I have been this trip. I know a very few things that I would take seriously. I would be crazier. I would be less hygienic. I would take more chances. I would take more trips. I would climb more mountains, swim more rivers, and watch more sunsets. I would burn more gasoline. I would eat more ice cream and fewer beans. I would have more actual troubles and fewer imaginary ones. You see, I am one of those people who lives prophylactically and sensibly insanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I have had my moments, and if I had it to do over again, I'd have more of them. In fact, I'd try to have nothing else, just moments, one after another, instead of living so many years ahead of each day. I've been one of those people who never go anywhere without a thermometer, hot water bottle, a gargle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had it to do over, I would start barefooted earlier in the spring and stay that way later in the fall. I would play hooky more. I wouldn't get such good grades except by accident. I would ride on more merry-go-rounds. I'd pick more daisies. And I just uh, wanted to share that poem because it kind of gives an idea of, I guess, how much a little adult I was when I was so young that this man saw this in me that I was pretty rigid at a very young age. 
And that was pretty much because I, I wore a mask to be perfect. I needed to be perfect. I needed to play a role in order to feel safe. So that is why I shared that poem. I mean, just to me, just you reading that poem, I just took a deep breath. <laughs> reading that wisdom going, yeah, <laughs> if we did it over again, maybe I just take a few more breaths. <laughs> like it calmed my whole body down. <laughs> but as I got older in my teens and my young adult years, it it only became worse. I tried desperately, desperately to fit in in whatever way I could, which led to me getting into many bad situations, which I'm not going to go into detail about, but I can just say I I went through a lot through my teens and um, young adult stage. As I got older, I did make it through college. I mean, it took me years to get through college. And then I went on to graduate school, but I had extreme anxiety. God, if I had to do a presentation, I my throat would literally close up my, I would, I couldn't, I could, barely get the words out. So sometimes the other like people in my group would have to take over because I couldn't speak. It lived deeply in me how how hard it was for me to speak sometimes. So that was my journey through like through being a young adult. Later on, what really opened my eyes to many things is just becoming a mom. So I'm an older mom. But you're a great mom. (laughs) I try, but I I'm an older mom. And I think that that's probably a good thing for my son. Because I was able to look at myself and see what part I played in this role of being a mom. I struggled with how to be a good mom. I think most moms do, trying to do the right thing, but not really feeling like you're doing the right thing. Uh, My son is 11 now, but in the earlier years, I just never, you know, punishment never felt right timeouts never felt right. I was raised with control. I was raised with criticism. Things need to be perfect. You Mm -hmm. don't question adults. You just, you do what you are told. With my son, I I saw myself doing those things because that's what I knew. That's where I came from. So that's what Mm -hmm. we do. Most, Most of us do. But I also noticed how incredibly upset he became and it got to me very deeply. Like if I was upset with him or I yelled at him, I felt awful. I hated who I was as a parent and what I was doing to my son. Mm-hmm. I felt like my my beautiful little crazy little silly boy who was devastated when I got angry. And that was usually because he didn't do what I told him to do. Mm-hmm. And I have to say too, like, you know, a little bit about that. I mean, Debbie's son is, is amazing. And if you know, you ever get to see his hair, he has the most beautiful <laughs> set of locks on his, on his head. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of families can resonate with that. It's you were taught that, you know, you have to be good in school and you have to get your homework done and you have to do this and do that. And, you know, if your kid's not performing or not doing it, you know, you you take that a little personal because, you know, it's it's hard. And I I feel for you. That's that's tough. And I know that was the beginning of your your journey through this. And I'm yeah. excited you know, to see what comes out of that. Yeah. Cause I, I always felt like, you know, if he didn't get his homework turned in or, and I mean, I can't even believe how much homework he had as a kindergartner and a first grader. I, it, it blew my mind. And I always felt like he had to have that done because that's how I was raised. You do everything that's there no matter what. So I was doing that, but 
it was more about me. Meanwhile, he's having a meltdown and I'm more worried about him getting the homework done. So it really, it didn't make sense. So I had to, at some point, and I don't exactly know when it was, I started to realize that it was about me. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about me because at one point I ended up taking him to therapy and that was, it was a horrible experience. He was too young. And I, and it was because he was, you know, he was really sensory. If you got a drop of water on him, he had a complete and utter meltdown. He was different than, you know, what I knew was supposed to be. And here I am a, a therapist, a speech therapist. So I'm always wearing my therapy hat. So I'm always trying to fix everything. And so I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to fix this. But yeah, it that was not what I was supposed to do. I was <laughs> supposed to just be a mom. But I realized that. And I also realized that it was a lot about control and I knew that I needed to stop the cycle and I couldn't pass on, you know, this way of raising. I didn't want to raise my son the way I was raised because after all, here I was so much later in life, still struggling with my own stuff, with my not being able to speak when I'm up in front of people, not being able to, you know, getting so emotionally upset because someone's not listening to me or not hearing me, which was often why I would get upset with my son. And I realized later that it was, that was me. I was upset because he didn't do what I told him to. So he wasn't listening to me. So I felt like I wasn't being heard. So I, I realized through my journey, a lot of what I would get angry about was because I felt like I wasn't heard. And so we have to hear, my belief is we have to hear our children. We have to hear what they have to say and what their feeling is real. So I didn't realize all of that until I, I mean, I did, I knew it deep down, but I didn't know how to help myself. So anyways, I, I found this, I found Dr. Valerie's book, The Patriarchy Stress Disorder. I read that and I just, it, it just struck me so deeply. I could, I had to do her uh, program. It was just amazing. And I met some amazing women along the way. And I, I am so thankful for that. But that program was all about getting in touch with body sensations, with what's happening inside your body, what my body was doing to keep me safe. That would be a quote unquote, keep me safe. Because in reality, the, the feelings that you have in your body, my throat closing when I wanted to use my voice, I learned that at a very young age to be quiet. My body learned that I needed to, it learned to respond like that in situations where I felt unsafe. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned that along the way, that was actually the first thing that I noticed was how deeply my voice was affected. And I started to notice that my throat would tighten up in certain situations, especially when I tried to speak differently from what maybe others believed or my thoughts were a little different. I would right away. And then the, in the redness, I would get bright red. I get when I'm feeling like I'm stepping outside my comfort zone. That has always been an, an issue for me. Um, my whole head would get, would get hot and, and then it would just get worse and worse as I become aware of it. So I really think that that is something that kept me very small. Uh, there were times in with my work that I really need it to give presentations and I needed to talk in front of people. It um, also because of my practice, I my private practice, I, I needed to be comfortable with speaking and it wasn't very comfortable. So I knew I needed to do something different. And that is, like I said before, I realized 
about my son that as I started to pay attention to my own body cues, I realized that when he wouldn't listen to me, my head would feel like it was about to explode. I would get all this pressure in my chest and in my muscles. And my, I, I mean, I can, I can like, just thinking about it, I can think about what I was like, like my, my neck, my shoulders, everything in me is just super tight. And I would just be angry, but it wasn't after, after the moment passed or whatever, I'd realized that that wasn't anger at him. It was anger that lived in me. I didn't quite know where it was or why as much. I kind of had an idea, but I didn't know completely until I dug a little deeper. And in my program, we had, you know, we had some deep dives where we could really get to the heart of, of what that is that was living in my body. And that helped me immensely. And I could let a lot of things go, feel things, learn what was helping, learn things, strategies and things that could help me to be okay with what was there, but then also to, to let it go. Mm -hmm. Um, there's obviously much more to the program than I can sit here and say on a, on a podcast, but it's what lives in my body. What now I know every minute of the day, if I, something triggers me, I know immediately what it is and I will stop myself and I will sit with it and I will figure out what it is and I can move forward. Whereas I would never have been able to do that two years ago or three years ago for it, whatever. I've also completely changed the way that I parent. I, I see now that the relationship with my son is the most important thing. That really truly is the only thing that matters. That's in regard to, I don't try and control the situation. I more want us to work together and work through it. I'm definitely not perfect. I do my very best not to criticize or not control or try to make him perfect. The most important thing is I don't want to squash him. I don't want him to lose that creativity. I don't want him to lose that that unique person that he is, but we respect each other. And now he, he cooperates more because we respect each other. I have respect for him and he has respect for me. Mm-hmm. Definitely not saying that we're perfect. Things come up, we have disagreements, but I am learning. And believe me, it's I'm learning to let him get back to being regulated. And then we talk. I'm learning that I need to help him learn how to learn about his own body, which is a process. And it's an interconnectedness that we as parents have to keep doing for many years. It's not something that ends because they went into their teen years or be even, even, even early twenties. It's doesn't stop at that point. There's still so many things that can come up that we still need to teach them and we still need to be connected. And if the relationship is gone, how can we be connected? So overall, I just, you know, being a parent is hard and I never know if I'm doing the right thing, but I do see positive changes in the relationship I have with my son. And it's not because of something he did or that I made him do perfectly. I think that's the message that I I really want people to hear. It was really because of what I learned about me from the inside out. And now I can show him how to work on that himself. I can be a better model. I can be a better mom in that way that I can show him there's another way to do things. I just want to share right here uh, the quote. I'm sure many people have heard it from um, Maya Angelou, who I try to remind myself of this. Do the best you can until you know better. 
then when you know better, do better. It's such an amazing, it's such a great quote because it's, we all do the best we can. And I, I think as people, as humans, we just are doing the best we can in this crazy, overwhelming world. And it's no different for our neurodivergent clients who are truly doing the best they can. Yeah. And um, I think even therapists, therapists yeah. you know, the best they can with what they're provided, what their knowledge is, training they're receiving. And so, you know, I think that the most important thing here too is to recognize that even though we're trying to do the best we can, if something comes along that makes more sense or is a little bit better than you think you were yesterday, that's the hard part. You have to take that leap and you have to just do it because those little steps is what's going to make the biggest difference. And this is why, you know, Debbie's story is so important. And so we recognize that we were one way and then we discover something new and now we're doing better. We're going to be starting that journey of being better. Hopefully through this podcast and the ideas that we throw out and talk about and it's it's not perfect. <laughs> it's <laughs> conversation about the frustrations and then hopefully we'll get feedback even from listeners saying hey did you think about this and you know challenge us with those ideas just do a little bit better every day yes what yolandi says is absolutely true it's it's not this isn't just about being a parent it's about being a therapist it's about being a person but the reality is the reason i shared my story is because the journey starts with with me the journey started with me but it, the journey starts with you the person that you are inside so therefore when we look at our clients why are we not looking at the inside and how life feels to them it's really about what's inside i don't know what my client feels i can't say oh you're fine when I really don't know how the noise outside is affecting that person. I really don't know how the lights are affecting how that person sees the lights or if the lights are blinding or if the lights are causing dysregulation. I don't know those things. And if I can't take the time to find out who that person is, then I can't be a good therapist. So it all starts within us as the teachers, as the models. It really starts with us. Right. And actually really discovering what those feelings are. I mean, I'm pretty early in my journey of interception. I haven't, you know, explored all the areas where I would like to explore. But even through that, I thought I knew myself pretty well. And I thought I knew how I think about things and react about things. But when I started to actually listen to my body signals, I'm discovering that I didn't have to feel this anxiety before because it was stuck in my body and it was misplaced and it was, you know, my body was giving me signals and I'm not listening to them. But imagine our clients and, and our students and these kids who, I mean, the best example I can come up with is, is a kid that needs to stim, a kid that needs to rock his, their body or flap their hands. There's a reason for that outlet of sensory input. There's a signal in their body saying, hey, you know, this is what I need in order to regulate. And us as therapists are quick to, even as the behaviors is quick to go, hey, no, you know, that's not socially appropriate behavior. And whether or not that is or isn't, that's still a need I'm not meeting inside their body. I am taking that away. And then that's, you know, that's their coping mechanism they learned or, you know, whatever that could be for that student. And I didn't replace it. I replaced the outside of, you know, I can give you something different to do with your hands or, you know, different to do with your body, but I didn't replace the feeling that's happening inside. Once you start kind of doing that work on yourself and looking inside, the more authentic person comes out. Yeah. 
once you start looking at yourself, then you start seeing others differently. And I think that's what, not that I've always been empathetic. I've always been an empathetic person. I've always, it's why I went into the field. It's why I've all, it's always been in me. But when I really started looking at myself, I started seeing like, they're really not so different. I need my breaks. I need to stem. I need to get regulated in my body. For instance, we actually had to carry this um, this recording over two days because, you know, talking about yourself and talking talking about myself like, is and talking about stuff that is uncomfortable can be dysregulating. So it can be dysregulating for me, who's supposed to be, I guess, quote unquote, neurotypical, which I literally wouldn't say because I believe we are all pretty much neurodivergent if we're human. But um, uh, other that's another story or another episode, but yes. um, <laughs> I, I needed to just say, okay, I'm done. I'm tired. I can't talk anymore because that was a lot. And I, through my experience of interoception or is my thriving experience really that I did, I, I learned capacity. I learned how much I could handle and when I need to step back and when I can move forward. And because these clients that we work with, these neurodivergent, beautiful people that we work with, I feel are very empathic, are very, get overwhelmed very easily. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to let them take those moments of pause and to get back into their body, to get back into the present. It's so important. And yeah, I just, I, I think interception is a way to get there. What I didn't know, so I, to continue on about with interception and why it's like my favorite topic and yes. it's become Yolandi's favorite topic, mm -hmm. because through my journey, I, I realized how important it was. I actually, when I started, I realized this was something, oh my, I immediately, I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to teach this to the people I work with, but I didn't know how I didn't, mm -hmm. I, it was, you know, it was a little, it's complex because you have to understand what's happening in your body. And then I listened to that webinar with Kelly Mahler and Kim Clary. And I was so excited. I just immediately, I was like, oh my gosh, I was given the tools I needed because I knew they needed it, but I didn't know how to break it down. And finding out that there are interoception differences with neurodivergent people explains so much, explained so much because I can, I'm aware of my body probably a little bit more, mm -hmm. a lot more than most, um, especially since I've done this work, but some of us are much more aware of our body and what that's signaling to our brain, but I did have to get in touch with it. So knowing that there's some differences in how they interpret those signals and that some could be, you know, they could be receiving all these signals all at the same time and not even realize like which one is important. So it could be the birds chirping outside and then they've got paper wrappers from people eating lunch mm -hmm. and people chewing and all of these sensations. Then we've got a conversation going, which one's the most important? If you're having interception differences, you may not be able to weed all that out. So with her um, learning about that and then further going into the curriculum and how Kelly breaks it down into, we start, we've got to start with like the external body parts from the hands, you know, how do things feel and really getting in touch with our body. That made sense. So much sense and it and it just gave me a way that I can teach these abstract emotions that I have been trying to teach as an as an SLP mm -hmm. 
for years and just realizing that and looking up the research and seeing that, you know, there's research talking about those particular words like anger and sadness. Those are abstract words that really can't be taught without feeling it in your body. Again, as a speech therapist, that just resonates with me. We can't teach it without understanding our body. We can't teach emotions and help them understand it without understanding our body. No, Debbie's 100% correct. I mean, even going through the program myself, like Debbie and I are very different. We notice the differences in, in our sensation and our body signals, even when it comes to just the feeling of hunger and what that feels like <laughs> it is. And when we talk about I'm, I'm the worst eater, I will, <laughs> I will tell you now that sometimes I eat once a day and I have to be reminded, mm-hmm. you know, so I mean, that's a whole other journey in itself, but <laughs> discovering, you know, what it actually feels like for me to be hungry is very different from Debbie's experience. Yeah. And as I'm going through, clients, that experience is very different. So when we're labeling things like, oh, you know, you you must be just hungry, you know, to me, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not hungry. You're wrong. But, you know, because I never really discovered those feelings. And, you know, as you kind of learn more about yourself, you start learning maybe other people are not that connected. And so we're giving them the information we think that they need, but in turn, you know, it was something different or it could have been something different. And that's not validating you know that authentic person so even through discovering interception and looking at it a little bit from a different perspective while we add in our our disciplines i mean this is why a multidisciplinary team is is so important but it's not just once a kid comes to me and it's like okay it's a speech thing that's all debbie that's not that's not it it's it's our schools of thought because we couldn't study everything we had to specialize but it's the conversation that we're having as a person as a whole bringing all the disciplines together and people talk about that multidisciplinary team very often, but it's really hard to to actually do. It's hard to have people sit in a room and talk about it because it's hours of conversation. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it's yeah, and each error. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, each person has to kind of step back and, and be willing to to hear the other's point of view and actually think, oh, that's actually a good idea. Right. That. A collaborative team rather yeah. than a, a we all treat different and it's, you know, a package, but there has to be something that we look at differently. And if we all maybe take a step from interception and have the conversation of, okay, this is a whole body and a person inside, and these are all the factors we're discovering, how would that treatment package then look like if we actually started from the bottom up with emotions and sensations and feelings, and we all have that understanding. So when I'm a behaviorist and I look at the outside behavior, I already have the understanding of what's happening on the inside. So I'm going to suggest these things. And then I'm going to check in with speech and check in with a psychologist and we're going to figure out, okay, is this the best future plan? I feel like the treatment would be so much richer, so much more authentic, so much more validating for a person to know that, hey, this is treatment based on how I'm feeling, not about how you want me to be and how you want me to feel. Yeah. And not take away that authentic, beautiful self. You know, we're not saying that true ABA, true speech and language and true occupational therapy practices and things are not valid. They are. I mean, when you understand a little bit more about the physiology of a person, 
and understand the thoughts and ideas and emotions behind it, then you can start looking at all of your assessments and your your things that would benefit that particular person. Rather than relying on your assessments to tell you a snapshot of that person, rely on the person to tell you which assessment to use in order to help them and help them grow. And I think that's kind of our point. Our point is maybe we should flip that narrative, switch it around, go, hey, let's look at the individual first and then go, these assessments are things that I want to excel your strength. And these are the things that are going to help replace some of those things that we need to replace. Yeah, and help you learn in the best way that you can learn, but also respecting the person that is inside, respecting Mm -hmm. the difficulties they have, respecting the sensory differences that are there acknowledging them and so that that person is not like squashed down and afraid to use their voice for me it's about the voice and obviously through my story my voice got squashed and I think that's what I see in these in the kids I work with is that I don't want their voices to be squashed I want to hear their voices and that's the other thing about interception even in our, our social learning that we do within groups putting interception into that because it actually it starts to help the the group members to get a connection they're all different yeah yes. connect and then find out oh what do I like what do I really like because I think they're so used to being told what they like or being told what they have to do mm-hmm. or what they're supposed to like or what feels okay to them because sometimes like I said earlier conversation was hard for me and I was supposed to be quote unquote normal that but normal is there is no normal in my mind. I don't think, mm. I think Yolandi and I agree on that. Right. We're, Normal's we're a myth. Normal. No, no one's normal. <laughs> but I, I had a lot of difficulty having a conversation. And sometimes I do have difficulty today having a conversation. Honestly, if it's not something that's very interesting to me, I really have to work hard at it. And that doesn't always feel good. So let's, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Let's be real. It's, right. it's not always easy. No. And I mean, even as professionals, I mean, Debbie and I are, are double digits of having years of experience. But even then, that doesn't mean that we don't come with our human side. We would never have pushed this podcast out if we tried to record things perfectly. I mean, I don't know how many times we recorded our intro, <laughs> you know, and, it, and there just comes a time when you're like, recognize that no one's perfect. Recognize that we're all in it together. We're all learning from each other and we're trying to do our best kind of look at things a little bit differently. And I think we start with our therapy. We start with the way that we're educating others to live. And through that and through all these people, we are learning. Like I can't tell you how many voices now I've heard and I'm excited for the couple of interviews we have lined up because they're amazing people who we want to share their story because we're learning from them what they need in order to regulate, what they need in order to just even have us talking on this podcast. And as a therapist learning about things that they have learned through their lives and what they like and don't like, I mean, I could have helped you excel so much faster if I just knew, knew what I, I mean, of course we all go, if I just knew back then what I know now, I mean, there's a reason in the universe, I believe why things happen. And Debbie and I, (laughs) Debbie more than me, believe in that, but it's, it's more of if we could look at the person as a whole first from now on, if we're saying, you know, from today on, this is what we're doing. Imagine 20 years from now, what that change is going to look like. And that's, what's exciting to me. Yeah. I'm learning, you know, you learn from your past experiences and you can go, oh, you know, shoot that, that was kind of yuck, but 
in the next 20 years, if we start here, imagine where you can be. A, a complete understanding of your body sensations, your body feelings. You understand what emotions are attached to those feelings, whether they're, you know, anxiety or embarrassment or jealousy. And then you actually know the coping strategies, the correct one for your body in that situation based on the emotion, how to calm your body down. And once your body is calmer, your brain is able to think, imagine the amazing decisions you can make. And imagine the decisions these kids that are neurodiverse can actually make if we validate that person, the leaps and bounds they'll make. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited for this this journey. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, I think we did we hit on everything for I think that we I were going to. So. I don't that's kind of interception why we're so excited about it. I'm I'm sure that as we move along we're going to continue to share more and more about how we see this, but, you know, leave it with do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I love it. And love it. I'm excited for this journey together. So stay tuned for a couple of interviews that we have lined up. Uh, we're going to be talking to some professionals, some autistic adults, and then just discussing their journey with and without interception. <laughs> Right. That's all for today. <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs>